Chapter 11 of A Water Biography by Robert C. Leslie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 11 The Rip Van Winkle Winters in Dock Two Tempting Offers I Refuse Them and Haul Out of Dock Mr. Blocks I Obtain His Assistance Official Red Tape Mr. Blocks Carried Out of Dock in RVW Alone Terrible scene with him on board. An interesting family event. Its consequence. A third offer for yacht. I part with her. She is rechristened and sails for Jersey. I keep the dinghy. Itchin' ferry fishermen. Yachtsmen and racing craft. I design a half-decked boat. She is built, etc. Mr. Marks and my brother christen her. Navigation of the Itchen. Jersey boat. An unexpected turn. Tugs and their followers. I nearly suspend my certificate. My boat jumps an oar. A bad lookout. Getting under way too soon, etc. The RVW lay in dock until the following March, at a weekly rent of one and eight pence, during which time I had two offers for her, one from a celebrated yacht skipper and pilot who wanted me to swap with him for a small check and an old ten-tonner, and another from a retired captain in the P&O, who offered a valuable collection of old masters of the Dutch and Flemish schools in part payment. I never saw those pictures, and not being a judge of old masters, there was just a chance, had I accepted his offer, that they might have proved a gross of green spectacles. I therefore now determined to haul the yacht out of dock and moor her in the itchin, where she would lie rent-free with no risk of being converted into old masters. And as, with my then limited knowledge of the port, this was not a single-handed job, I had to look round for a mate. Among the waterside people of Woolstone was a stout, round, little naval pensioner who added considerably to his income by applying repeated coats of many-colored paint to a small yacht there. He was quite an artist in this business, and from his love of a bright canary color for blocks and mastheads, was sometimes spoken of as Mr. Yellowblocks. 
He was a good specimen of the old seaman gunner, and one of the select few wounded by the enemy's fire in the Baltic, having lost the end of a finger by a splinter from a Russian shell. He was a capital fellow, and his only fault was that whether stroked the right or wrong way, he was always in the opposition. So that when I required his services, I usually began by opposing his plan of operations and then telling him to do it his own way. This change of front enabled us to pull together because, as he said, You see, sir, you vary so. The unlocking of the Rip Van Winkle, as he called her, was not a matter to be easily undertaken by him. And as he and I, with his boy and my two, rode over to the docks, the usual arguments as to how it should be done took place. I suggested a tug. Well, he never knowed sich a extortional idea. Why, if you was to go for to only look at one, they'd want a small fortune. And it must be a blowin' a blue pig's if him and his boy couldn't tow her out of dock. It was not blowing pigs of any color when Mr. Blocks and his boy commenced towing the RVW toward the entrance of the inner dock. But she was foul below water, and they were making slow progress across the dock, when a breeze sprang up right ahead, and finding they were losing ground, they made fast to a warping buoy. I then left the tiller and took the boy's oar, and after half an hour's hard work we got her to within warping distance of the lock, into which a light collier had just gone ahead of us. Then Mr. Blocks, seeing she had a tug ready to take her out, asked her skipper, if he would be so kind as to oblige with a pluck into the river. The lock gates were already open, and there was just time to make fast astern of the brig, when an official pounced down upon me on board the RVW for my pass or receipt for a fortnight's dock dues, without which no vessel could leave dock. The money was easily found, but I had to go ashore to get the pass, and only returned in time to see Mr. Blocks flying out of dock astern of the collier with no one aboard the RVW but the three youngsters. This was very provoking, but I am always being pounced upon by officials of some kind at inconvenient times or when I am busy. There's a man just come to see me if my water taps are leaky. I always leather them myself, and yet he says, One leaks a little. Then there's the income tax man, 
who wants to know what I live on. And when I tell him, not on writing books about boats, says, yes, but you must live on something, then I tell him, I live mostly on boats, and he says, that won't do, etc. Well, after this interruption, I had to recross the river by the ferry, and by the time I got on board again, Yellow Blocks, who had let go his tow-line and anchored in the middle of the river, was mopping his face in the cockpit, panting and puffing with indignation and pity for himself. Left on a wares, alone in a craft like she, without a hand able to let go of a rope, let alone making fast and ever he thinks to worry temporary. Yes, he never seed nothing so temporary aboard any vessel afore, and never experience a half hour like it since he were born, and wouldn't honor take sich a job again, no, not if you was to go on your bended knee and offer him a five pun note to do so. When he paused to take breath, I said, well, your anchor was all ready to let go. Oh, yes, and he let it go, and pretty night tore his and half the doing so. Mr. Block's hand did not look much the worse, and after this explosion, things went on more smoothly. The yacht was laid ashore for a scrub, over which I left him and his son to argue for a couple of days, after which we took her up the river with the tide, and moored her comfortably fore and aft, where she lay upright at low water on a soft cushion of mud. She remained here for over a year, when the question of all cruising in her was definitely settled for us by the rather unexpected arrival at Salcombe Cottage of a fourth child and third son, sent no doubt to fill the place of our second boy, who being born a good sailor, had now left us for the Britannia training ship. It was just after this interesting event that having gone on board the yacht one day to air her and pump out rainwater, two very sad-faced shipwrights, after rowing round her once or twice, hailed me with, No offense meant, sir, but if they understood right, which they'd eared the vessel were for sale, and was just taken the liberty to have a look, if, in course, there was no offense in doing so. On which I, in course, asked them to come on board, and tried, ineffectually, to make them feel at ease. They belonged, however, to the now nearly extinct humble servant type of artificer, and after a careful survey of the RVW left me overwhelmed with profound apologies for making so bold as to intrude, etc. A week later 
the most melancholy of the two men who were brothers appeared at salcombe cottage and hoping there was no offence and if he might say so as no arm was intended what might be the value i put on my wessel not as they was thinking much of buying but understood as she was for sale thought no harm would come of inquiring at what price i invited him to sit down which he could not be induced to do and telling him i was chiefly anxious to sell on account of a recent domestic affliction and that i wanted rather to get the yacht off my hands than the money which was more or less a lie he remarked as the mansion alluding to salcombe cottage spoke all that but if they were to make so bold as to make an offer there would be no harm meant or done the upshot of which was that having now paid my footing as a shipbuilder the r v w was sold to those melancholy humble men of heart for less than half her value and was removed to their yard or dock where she lay for several months until after being altered into a cutter she was sold by them to a jersey cow dealer with a view to trade between the islands and granville i had another painful interview with the melancholy one when this sale took place and had to fill up and sign a long form of particulars as to the material and fastenings of the r v w which he begged if no offence and i'd no objections might be described not of course meaning any harm but as some might like to alter the name if it was there put down as rip van winkle pro tem she was in fact rechristened alexandrina by her new owner and turned up under that name one day at southampton with a cargo of potatoes but the last i saw of her was on the evening she started on her first voyage to jersey when in a light wind i sailed round her in a half-decked boat and her new owner and skipper said you wouldn't do that if i was outside and at the same time offered me a passage on board her to jersey this of course i had to decline and console myself as i wished him a pleasant voyage with the thought that after all the idle time spent on her some one might now be able to turn an honest penny in the rip van winkle i did not sell her dinghy though not long after the sale of the yacht i had an offer via mr blocks of four pounds for her from a barge owner which as mr blocks said he should be ashamed to mention to a gent like me what he knowed wouldn't on no account whatsomever sell that boat for twice the money in fact mr blocks now rapidly developed a quite paternal interest not only in the dinghy but all the family 
and when he met any of us, afloat or ashore, seemed to think we had been dropped from heaven for his especial joy or benefit. So that soon after I became the owner of a new half-decked boat, his interest in her became so oppressive that to escape it I shifted my moorings from the coast of Woolstone to one among the fishermen off Itchen Ferry, who, having boats of their own to look after, had less time than Mr. Block's to devote to me and mine. Fish and shrimp trawling in the Solent and Southampton water was, I fancy, a better business then than now and most of these men began life afloat as soon as they could hold a tiller or tend a fire in the dark little forepeak of their father's boat. There was great esprit de corps among them, combined with constant rivalry between each boat when beating to wind or running home to market and this kept up a constant supply of most efficient fore-and-aft sailors and yachting pilots, though I do not think they were much improved by this employment. I never took much interest in yacht racing, and take less every year, as the type of racer, since I first knew the sport, recedes further from that of the older racing craft which, after their cup-winning days were over, not only made comfortable cruisers, but good, wholesome fishing and pilot boats. And since the introduction of outside lead, the process of evolution or change has been so rapid that a boat built in the winter of one year is often out of date by the close of the yachting season so that unless an owner of even a small craft is ready to spend two or three hundred upon a new boat annually, he is quite out of the game, while in the larger classes the expense is so enormous that no one under a millionaire will soon be able to compete in them. In my time I have built or owned six boats, and can honestly say that from the first time to the last they have all been boats for which a man could find some use, and in which he might earn a living. The first boat I had, after giving away my yacht, was designed to be simply as large as I could build her for the money and length, eighteen feet and on leaving Southampton she was sold to a fisherman who, on my return there four years later, refused more than the price I got for her, though her sails and gear were then almost worthless. I had many pleasant cruises during the five years I had this boat, with my little daughter Kate as crew, until she became such a good hand at the tiller that I was able to trust to her steering even in a crowded tideway. We never gave the new boat a name, until one day my brother George and his friend H. Stacy Marks 
being on board in a two-reefed breeze and choppy sea, after many attempts to light their pipes and keep them going, christened her my water spaniel. She was built by a working shipwright at Woolstone from molds drawn on my painting-room floor and cost forty-five pounds. This was thirty years ago, and I still meet her cruising about the Solent and Southampton water. The navigation of the Itchen past the docks and steam ferry to our moorings was a first-rate school of river work, especially against wind and tide, among vessels and tugs coming in and out of dock. In crowded riverboat sailing, I have always found that most accidents are owing either to a bad lookout or to some previous false move. Close shaves must often be the rule in this sort of work, for without them such navigation would almost be impossible. Still, as long as there is plenty of wind or motive power, a small sailing craft is as easily handled in a crowded tideway as a steamer. But in light winds, this is not always the case, and I remember one day seeing the funnels of a Jersey boat moving out fast above the dockhead, and knowing she could not see my boat, kept inshore out of her way under the upper dockhead. The wind was light, and I was not a little surprised when, instead of going down the river as I had expected, the steamer turned short round this upper dockhead almost on top of me. She was in the hands of an old friend, Captain Goodrich, and I had just time to down helm and come up in the wind as he sung out, All right, Leslie, and passed me with his paddle-box a few inches clear of my bowsprit end. He was not outward bound, but up the river for repairs, and was coming out of dock at almost full speed in order to make a sharp turn round that dockhead. Tugs, especially with two or three vessels in tow, are often awkward to deal with when beating up or down a river. Because, though the tug may be able to slow or stop, she dare not do so on account of the vessels astern of her. And I once narrowly escaped being dismasted by a light collier, cast off with full way upon her from a tug, when the collier turned short round on me toward a ballast wharf. It was calm, and I only saved my mast by two or three strong backstrokes with an oar, or sweep, which luckily I had handy. I always hold an impartial inquiry on board after such occurrences. But I cannot say that, had either of these shaves ended badly, I should have suspended my certificate. This was not the case, however, 
one day when sailing out of the itchin before a nice breeze i found myself for want of a little foresight running close past a long ballast lighter which was poling slowly up the river in such a position that if i bore away i should be under the bows of a large catch beating up with the tide across the river while if i luffed there was not room to pass between her and the lighter's stern owing to a long steering oar i and the catch were both going fast and there was not an instant to spare and to escape a decided smash i luffed sharp round and charged the bow steering oar with the chance of going over it or breaking it or my boat's forefoot i asked the man at the oar as i did so to raise the inner end of it i had not time to see whether he did or not but my boat came short round between the catch and the barge's stern with a foot or two to spare the men on board the catch evidently expected a smash and looked as much surprised as i was myself at the way the boat slipped in between them and the lighter now this was a clear case of a false move for half a minute earlier nothing would have been easier than for me to have gone the other side the lighter and astern of the catch as it was i escaped one horn of the dilemma thanks to the handiness of my boat better than i deserved another occasion in which i nearly came to grief for want of a good lookout was after having been at anchor all day fishing below netley with the wind across the river i had hoisted my mainsail preparatory to getting under way but had not observed a large outward-bound p and o boat coming down and steering with the evident intention of passing just clear of my stern and ahead of some other boats also at anchor she had not sounded her whistle and seeing we were all at anchor no doubt did not think it necessary to do so but the first i saw of her was after i had started my anchor out of the ground and while hauling it up found i was driving astern right across her course it was too late to let go my anchor again and i had barely time to ease my main sheet hoist the foresail and pay off under it down the river before the great steamer was close upon me with her three masts in line happily big steamers are not wide but as i bore away from her and watched her masts i was not sorry to see them open out clear of each other i don't suppose the pilot on board her blessed me because it was a clear case of bad lookout while to make matters worse had anything gone wrong i had my last small boy in the boat with me that day
End of chapter 11